Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about theme and we're talking about mechanics. We're talking about the intertwining of theme and mechanics, marrying those two things together to create a great experience for your players. And we're talking to Scott Rogers, designer of ray guns and rocket ships. Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you, Gabe. It's great to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited. This is this is a topic. This is one of my favorite things to talk about in game design. Whenever I get a chance to just talk about uh, game design to, to friends and people, you know, family that probably don't really want to listen, but I'm going to talk anyway. And one of the things I love talking about is making a game that is an experience where everything makes sense, all the mechanics make sense, and the theme it all comes together. And I'm excited to talk to you, talk to you about this. We were talking right before the show about you know creating a game that the publisher try maybe even tries to change the theme but can't do it because the mechanics are so intertwined. And so I'm I'm pumped to kind of get into this. But just in case people never heard of you, Scott, give me your bio. Kind of tell me who you are, how you got into game design, all that good stuff. Well, uh, to the outside observer, I am a relatively new person in the world of board game design. Um, although I have been um, working on designs and trying to get published since about 2006. Uh, but my main um, profession is video game design. And I've worked for over, oh gosh, uh, about 21, 22 years as a video game designer. Uh, I worked on what are known as AAA uh, console and computer games. Uh, these are games like God of War and Pac-Man World and uh, Darksiders and Warhammer 40K, uh, even some SpongeBob SquarePants thrown in there for good measure. Uh, so I have a lot of experience uh, making video games, and video games are not too dissimilar to board games in some respects. Um, but the other uh, area that I have a lot of expertise in uh, is as an educator, and um, I've taught at uh, University of Southern California and also the New York Film Academy, which is uh, the branch that I teach at, is located in Los Angeles. And I've taught classes on board game design. And uh, for your listeners out there, they might recognize my voice. I am known as Professor Scott Rogers, and I do a segment that used to be on the Dice Tower and is now on the Ludology broadcast uh, that is called Biography of a Board Game, where we examine a history of uh, famous or influential board game and kind of talk about where it came from and and all types of fun stuff like that yeah and i just now made that connection i was like i have heard your voice many <laughs> many times in the past very cool how did you get into the let's tangent for just a second how did you get into the biography of a board game well tom vassal personally asked me to join Okay, let me amend that. Tom Vassell personally asked all his listeners to submit a segment to the Dice Tower. And uh, it just so happens that I'm an acquaintance, well, a little more of an acquaintance now uh, with Jeff Engelstein. At the time, though, um, we were kind of like um, Twitter and, and Facebook buddies. And uh, I was always a big admirer of Jeff's work and his podcast, Ludology, which is uh, fantastic. And he's been doing for, I want to say, like 10 years now, a long time. Yeah. And... Um, and I asked him, I said, how did you get started doing this? And Jeff said, well, Tom, pretty early on, put out a call for people to submit segments. And uh, and I replied and came up with Game Tech. And, and that, you know, has been a regular feature since. And, and the funny thing was, as I was having that conversation with Jeff, literally within that 
week, Tom had put out a message saying, hey, uh, if anybody wants to submit a segment, I would love to, to hear it. And so that kind of sparked me into action. And I had several different ideas that I wanted to pitch. And I ran them by Jeff. And I said, hey, Jeff, which one do you think is the most interesting? And he's like, oh, this this biography of a board game segment is the best one. Why don't you do that? So I went ahead and did that in, uh, I want to say, 2016, pretty early 2016. So I was only on the Dice Tower for about a year or so when Tom changed format. But Jeff was really kind enough to extend a spot onto Ludology. And so I've been running about once a month uh, as a as a fill-in feature to give Gil and Jeff a little bit of a break on their show. Yeah, very cool, man. I've learned about so many random games thanks to you. So I really appreciate <laughs> you doing that. I've learned all about the history and the you know how games came to be. That's that's awesome. Well, like I said on the show, every game has a story, and and you know it's it's they're always interesting. Yeah, no doubt. And let's let's get into that. Let's talk about how some of these games come to be. So when we're talking about the intertwining of theme and mechanics, give me a good definition. Let's work up a really good way just to to define that as we kind of go into this topic. Sure. So the way that I think about it is that. Uh, a thematic mechanic or a thematic mechanism is one that is so integrally tied to the theme of the of the game that if you were to remove it, it were to change the experience of the game itself. Now, there are some really good examples. The one that always pops to mind first uh, is maybe one of the oldest ones as well, and that is uh, from one of my favorite games, which is Betrayal and House on the Hill. And in it, they have the haunt mechanism. Which, if you're not familiar with the game, uh, you play probably the first two-thirds of the game exploring a haunted house. Now, that's that's another mechanism that's very thematic as well, which is you're searching this house and laying down tiles and it's revealing room after room. But some people criticize it, saying it's a little too random, that the, the layout of the house is a little too weird. Of course, the... The original designer says, hey, it's a haunted house. It's supposed to be weird. So right. so I, I always like that uh, that comeback. But the haunt mechanism itself are these cards that you reveal over the course of the game as you find specific rooms. And they are – they're kind of like ill omens. Um, they're, they're objects usually that the player can use uh, to help or to hinder them during the course of the game. But as the game is played – um, more of these omen cards are being revealed, and it and it's leading up to an event called a haunt. Um, and in it, uh, the number of cards every time you reveal an omen, uh, you roll a die. And the die in Betrayal House in the Hill are a little unusual. They are, uh, I think, they're blank on one side. They have ones on one side and a two on the other. And you roll about six of these guys. So the uh, statistically, the the numbers that you have to deal with are zero to about. Um, I want to say, well, well, two times so, six, uh, 12 or so, I guess. Yep. So there's, so the number goes, um, goes relatively high. Um, but as you lay down the omens, you roll those six dice and you're trying to get a number uh, equal to or lower than the number of omen cards that are out into play. And essentially what this does is as you are laying out omen cards, you start getting this feeling of dread because you know something bad is going to happen and you don't know what it is because there are 50 different uh, haunt results in the game. It's pretty robust. But you know something is bad is going to happen. But as you go, you roll the dice and you go, oh, crap, is the is the dice going to reveal a uh, the haunt this time? Or will we have enough time to maybe gather some weapons or some other uh, things to help us along the way? 
And and I've been in games where it's gone on six, seven, eight, nine rolls, and everybody at the table just starts getting more nervous and more nervous and more nervous. But of course, um, it's that's one of the delicious things about the game is that it it does create this feeling of dread, um, it, which is pretty pretty uh, a nice feat for a, a you know a box of cardboard. Yeah, definitely. And the way I look at it. Intertwining the theme and the mechanics is where you get the experience. Like when I when I start to create a game, I sit down and I say, all right, what do I want players to feel? Do I want them to feel like a pirate on the open sea, you know, going and trying to find buried treasure? Because that's different than saying, okay, I've got this mechanic, and then I want to figure out what's going to work with that. That's, that's a very different thing. And there's not one better way than another. But well, I, I argue that there is. Okay. I argue there is. I argue that there is a better way because let's take for example um, a, a pick up and deliver style game. Now we've all played them, and and you know you you move your um, little blocks around here and there. You have some sort of token that represents your character or whatever, uh, and you're moving the blocks around. But the minute you elevate it with a mechanism such as there's there's two games that come immediately to mind. One is an older game called Bootleggers, yep. and Bootleggers uh, is if you haven't played it uh, is a game set in the 1930s or so, the kind of the prohibition. And you're a gangster uh, running like a speakeasy, and you are illegally shipping alcohol to your speakeasies. And the really fun thing about Bootleggers is you have these little plastic trucks. And in the back of those trucks, you load them up with little natural colored wooden cubes and they look like little crates sitting, you know, crates of alcohol sitting in the back of your truck. Now, the more modern equivalent of that uh, mechanic is a game called Black Sails, which I don't know if you've played that. I it's play a, that one. Yeah, it's a pirate pickup and deliver game. And you have um, these ships that have a capacity for, I want to say, two or three pieces of cargo. And uh, one is a slightly bigger ship and the other is a smaller one supposed to be like a frigate and the other is like a galleon. And you sail these ships around trying to get to ports and making deliveries and getting points for them. And and without that mechanism of a little miniature with these little pieces of cargo represented by these wooden cubes, it just wouldn't feel like the same way. It really immediately gets you into the mood and the theme and you're like, I get it. I'm a bootlegger. I'm driving my truck around. I'm a pirate. I'm sailing my ship around. And, it's, and it really um, – it just that very simple uh, decision to say, all right, we're going to spend the extra money and make these little plastic guys. I think it makes a huge difference in just how the game feels. No, it's fair. But let's let's kind of talk about the other side. So we're talking right now about theme and mechanics. What about flipping it and saying mechanics and intertwining it with a theme? Sure. So uh, a game that I've been pitching around, uh, you can find it on Board Game Geek. It's got a listing. Uh, it's called Seance. And I was thinking about putting I – was, I was designing a card game, and I said I wanted to do something unusual with cards that, hadn't, that I hadn't seen done very often. So I was looking at all these different layouts of cards, you know, solitaire and, and I don't know, you name it, the whole gamut of, of card games over the years of history. And I noticed that there usually was not um, – there weren't a lot of card games that involved putting the cards in a circle. And so I said, well, okay, what is a what does a circle remind me of? And first I was like a clock, and and I, I kind of thought about what kind of game I wanted to make with a clock in it, but I, it didn't quite. I wasn't satisfied with it. But what what did come to mind? I'm a big fan of 
Uh, I love Halloween. I love spooky stuff. Uh, and I'm a particularly big fan of the Haunted Mansion at the Disneyland parks. And there's the sequence in, in the Haunted Mansion where you have the character Madame Leota. She's kind of a medium and she's having a seance. And so I did a little research and I researched about seance and I found this – immediately I found this great image of all these people sitting around at a table, uh, sitting in a circle. Uh, and, and every picture that I found of a seance, it was always a circle. And I said, there's, there's my answer. There is my connection. And so I designed a game that was meant – it was about summoning spirits and trying to communicate with good ones and trying to banish bad ones. And it was a very simple um, card game, like a pattern matching type game. But um, but I found it fit really well. And and the thing that was really f kind of fun about it was I pitched it to a publisher and they had it for a while. And unfortunately, they passed on it. But um, but while they were developing it, the publisher said, uh, you know, there's probably a good chance I'm going to change the theme of this game because, you know, I don't know how people are going to sit very well with seance. It's, you know, it's got witchcraft and it might turn some people off. And I said, that's fine. I, I don't mind. So let's come up with something better. And we brainstormed a whole bunch of different ideas and Indiana Jones type stuff and, and the Da Vinci Code type codex and things like that. All, a lot of um, things based on pattern making. And eventually about three months of, of this kind of back and forth with the publisher, he finally wrote back to me and he said, I give up, Scott. We're just Let's just go with the seance instead because the theme fits the mechanics so well that there's just no way that I can that I can change this. It just it would break it if I changed it. And and I was like, that's fine. I'm you know I'm happy that it, it's so tightly connected that you know I love the theme and I think we can do it justice and make it not creepy or weird or, or witchcrafty and uh, and and that. So uh, you know, like I said, unfortunately it, it didn't work out, but. Uh, that's available if somebody is out there and they think that kind of game sounds cool, please drop me a line. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's talk about why this is so important. Why is this a big deal? Why is this a topic on the podcast? Like help, you know, me and the listeners understand why this is such a big deal. Um, I think there's a couple of, there's a couple of reasons why the first is what we talked about earlier, which was, uh, there is this, this, um, it's a truth uh, within the game industry, the board gaming industry, uh, where publishers will change the theme of your game. And it's and I know that for some game designers, it's kind of a fear where they might fall in love with a theme or they might go, oh, I really want to do this really cool theme about sock puppets or unicorns or whatever. And when it gets in front of a publisher, they're like, oh, sock puppets just aren't in this year. Uh, let's instead let's make them pussycats or something like that. And uh, and. I know some game designers that are always a little disappointed when that happens to their game, but you know they might say, okay, well, you know, I'd rather just have the game out, so um, so I'm okay with this. But I know there's other game designers that are really into the theme, like myself. I'm a I'm a huge theme guy. If you look at my uh, board game collection, I am definitely in the Ameritrash department, uh, you know, of of games. And uh, and so if you want to retain your theme, uh, try to tie it in as tightly to your mechanics of your game as possible um and, and particularly if you can make it something that kind of visually defines the game um another game that i've been developing is a game about uh, gunfighting and um it takes place on a street uh, it's called a town called showdown and you have two cowboys and they essentially kind of walk their way down the street and then they roll turn and roll dice and it represents the gun firing and the problem that I'm having with the game when I'm pitching it is that uh, I pitch it to them and they go, wow, we really like this game, but it's a two-player game. And I said, well, of course it's a two-player game. Gun duels are usually 
two players. And the theme of the game is that you're in this competition, and so you have several gunfights, and uh, and it's meant to represent this kind of high noon showdown. And they said, well, have you thought about making it three player or four player or some or even solitaire? And I'm like, well, that would kind of ruin the game. I, I it just wouldn't fit the theme. And so this is this is where it can be a bit of a problem. Is that if the game works so well within that theme and that structure that it um, it definitely makes it um, a very specific type of game. And sometimes that can be a little bit of a harder sell. But I'm but I'm convinced that there is a, a home for it somewhere. Now on the on the other end of the spectrum is I think also creating something that. Um, is very tied thematically to the mechanics. It it makes it very easy for the player to get it. So when you look at my gunslinging game and you see that street and you see the miniatures and you see the cards laid out representing the people watching the gunfight and you see the dice stacking up as you're essentially loading bullets into your gun, people go, I get it. I, I don't I just need to glance at this game and I understand what it's about. And so I think that that, that instant um, kind of spark getting the player to go, oh, I get this, and this sounds like something I really would want to try out. I think that's an important thing for game designers to try to capture. It's not, it's kind of elusive, but I think it's doable. Yeah, I'm right there with you. That's that's my biggest point, or you know, biggest thought with this intertwining theme of mechanics, is that things make sense. It makes the yeah. game easier to learn. It makes the game uh, just more understandable as you're playing when the mechanics actually make sense. The game I'm working on right now, it's college football, and you're trying to you know bring players onto your team. And the mechanic you use to get them on your team, you have to spend time, and yeah. you know because that makes sense. That's how it works when you're recruiting people for a football team. It, you got to sit in their living room and spend time with their mama and try to make sure they want to come be on your team. <laughs> and, and you know that makes sense as you're you're bringing players in. Uh, if, now, now you're, well, here's a here's a thing that I think you as a game designer we have to sometimes be a little careful of, and that is. The difference between um, a board game and a simulation. Right. Uh, and a simulation is when you get really into the weeds about the details of things and go, I want every moment of minutia represented in the game. And sometimes I feel that that can get a little too um, tedious uh, for the players. But uh, but some people really enjoy that. Like I look at, um, have you played Kanban, the, the auto uh, manufacturing game? No, I know what you're talking about, but I haven't played it yet. But if you take a look at that board, like like every step of the way of making a car is represented. And on one hand, I'm intrigued by it because I'm like, well, I, I don't really know how cars – I mean I know how cars are made, but I don't know how they're really made. But conversely, I look at that game and go, oh my gosh, it's, it looks like it's going to take forever to play. And, and what if I have so many choices? I'm not going to be able to make a decision. And so this is a risk that uh, you run. It's a very fine line between that that – you know, heavy theme versus the true simulation. Yeah. Now, what advice would you give somebody who's really trying to walk that fine line to make sure they don't go too far over the edge? Ah, so um, when I uh, when I teach the board gaming class, I I tell my students that there is every game has something called a primary action. Uh, and essentially, uh, it's just my fancy way of saying that uh, there is kind of a game genre, you know, like a um, you know, it's a it's a roll and move or it's a worker placement or it's a, um, you know, a, a pick up and deliver or a miniatures combat game or something. You know, it's essentially the the genre is another word that we use for that. And and make sure that whatever you're doing for that primary action is something that the player does a lot. So if it's a worker placement game, make sure they are placing either a lot of workers 
or placing workers a lot of times. Like um, I've been I've been working on a worker placement recently, and I'm so I'm doing my research and looking into games that I need to to play, and I'm finding that. Um, there's some interesting, subtle differences between worker placements. One of them was – I'm, I'm blanking on the names of the games. I apologize. But one of them was like you have a lot of guys and that allows – like like uh, Stone Age, for mm-hmm. example. Stone Age, you, you can end up having a lot of guys doing a lot of different things. Um, but then there was a game uh, – I want to say it's called Fresco or something like that where you have like a limited number of little workers. But over the course of a day, you can move them around. So you start out in the morning doing one thing, and then in the afternoon they do something else. I think Tricurion also does this as well. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's like a huge difference right there. It's But within that band of – it's still about worker placement, and you're still placing a lot. It's just how do you want to divide up the, the actions for the player? Yeah, and so going back to my question, let's go a little bit farther. How do you keep from it becoming that simulation? So, for simulation. So, for instance, with Stone Age, how do I keep from getting so caught up in those workers and making sure they really seem like cavemen and they do all these cavemen things as opposed to just kind of stepping back and going, okay, these are really just workers. And let's make them a little bit caveman-like, but we don't want this to be a four-hour game. So how do you right. kind of, have you had any experience you know, pulling, the, pulling it back a little bit? Well, I think I think the two mechanisms in Stone Age that are really uh, well, okay. First of all, the rolling the dice to get resources is really a nice addition to the to the worker placement genre, I think. Um, but like I said, I don't have a huge experience playing a lot of worker placement games, but enough to 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 know some differences. But the two mechanisms that I think are the most thematic in Stone Age, one is the everyone goes out to hunt. So if you have no more options, well, we're just going to go out and hunt. And and that feels very uh, uh, Stone Age, right, to me. The, the yeah. little prehistoric guys go out to hunt. And then, of course, the other I think is everybody's favorite mechanism in that game, which is you put two meeples in the little love shack and they make a new meeple, right? And and that's you know that's that's just kind of fun. And you're like, all right, you know, they're cave people, and I get it. They're making more cave people, you know. And and so to me, just you know, the two those two little things go. I mean, they don't carry the whole game for me, but they they go pretty far to like kind of endearing me to that game. Just the kind of the the charm of the of those mechanisms, I think are uh, I think they work really well for me. Yeah, it's a great point. I think less is more. I think you can add just a handful of light touches that really uh, bring out the theme, and and you don't have to go super in depth because I mean, players are going to get it just by a handful of things that really bring it out. Yeah, I think, Gabe, you, you bring up an interesting point and, and difference, which is you don't need a lot, but what I think what you do need is integral. Yeah, I think yeah. you need at least one thing that is kind of integral to the game that makes it um, – that really makes it sing. So, for example, the last uh, biography of a board game I just did was on Mr. X, which is uh, the same gameplay as like Fury of Dracula and and Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space and things like that. And this is this mechanism of the hidden uh, role. The, the one player is playing the bad guy and they're trying to run all over and either cause trouble or just get away. And uh, And just that alone, like the whole game hangs on that mechanism. If it doesn't have that mechanism... There's no there's no Scotland Yard. That game just falls apart if it doesn't if you don't have that in the game. And 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 there's not a lot there's not a lot past that, right? There's the playing the cards to kind of show where you're at and the you know every you know kind of the one versus many. But, you know, other than that, there's there's very little um 
mechanisms within that game, but it works so well, even though it's a you know 30-year-old game. Right. Now, let's talk about why this is so hard. Right. This is easily the biggest challenge I have is making the mechanics in my game make sense, making them integral to the theme and it all intertwined. Because honestly, creating a game that works, not necessarily that's fun, but it works, <laughs> is not terribly difficult. It's hard, but it's not nearly as hard as making it all make sense. Why is it so hard? Mm, I think sometimes it could be one of three things. One, the designer hasn't done their research enough and, and come up with kind of that list of associated activities. So I'm sure, Gabe, when you did you're doing your football game, you have a list. Like when you started out, did you make a list of like, all right. And you say, you've said on your podcast that you've played sports before. So you have that personal experience that you're drawing upon. Right. So you're, you're saying, I want my game to be about A, B, and C. You know, this is the type of experience I've not seen represented in a board game before. So therefore, gosh darn it, I'm going to make that game. Um, So that's number one is kind of making that laundry list of like, all right, this game is really important. These are the things that I think will make it feel a lot like the theme I'm trying to make it. Uh, Second, I think, once again, is that primary action is then going, okay, uh, even though there's all these different things I want the players to do, can I tie them together uh, mechanically? Uh, so you don't like Gabe in your game. Um, I assume you don't have like I got to roll dice to do this one thing, and I've got to move guys over here to do this other thing, and I've got to play cards to this other thing, right? You're not you're not using like a ton of components in your game, are you? No, it's got a bunch of dice, which you know yeah. you roll to determine uh, who wins games. Like you know, different a die counts for a drive, right? And right. so it's got blanks, it's got a seven, some sevens, it's got a three to see what you know. But, you know, you roll dice just to determine that one thing, and other, otherwise you're just gaining cards, you know, as your players. And so those are the two main mechanics. You're recruiting players, and you're rolling dice to determine outcomes in games. All right, so that's smart because you're not going nuts with your components. Yeah. Right? You're not going nuts with the different types of mechanisms. So I think that's the second thing is kind of to fight that urge to make uh, – to kind of use all the tricks in the book. I think it's, it's always better for game designers to operate within a box – and I, I mean that figuratively and literally sometimes, um, rather than to have the whole world at your fingertips. Because after a while, you just get, you know, it's like analysis paralysis for game designers. You're like, there's so many different things I can use. Which one is the best? And I think the answer to that is the one that most feels like the type of experience you're trying to make or replicate. Uh, and then the third thing uh, is, does it look good or make sense to the player when they're observing it. I think that uh, table appeal, or at least like I was talking about earlier, that that idea of I walk by, I look at it, I get it. I, I understand what this game is about. You know, Candyland is a not a great game, but if you look at that game, you pretty much have figured it out just by glancing at it, right? And, and, and I think that's part of the reason why it's stuck around so long is it's just very easy for people to understand. So, yeah, yeah, that's I think those are the three most those are the easiest things to kind of check off, make sure and and use them as touchstones. So as you're designing your game, you keep coming back to them and say, um, I am I doing this? You know, is it doing these things that I want to make it feel like the type of game that I'm making? Yes or no. And if it doesn't, then maybe you don't need it. Maybe it's maybe it's not necessary. Are these mechanics all tied into the type of primary action I want the player to do? If it doesn't, well, maybe you can lose them. 
Yeah, I think it's so good to have constraints, like you said, to operate inside of a, a, a box, so to speak, because constraints will really help you make those design decisions when the decisions are difficult to make. You can kind of give it a, you have a good decision filter. And especially when you make that list at the beginning, you say, hey, this is the experience I want. Is this giving me that experience? Is this pointing towards that experience or not? And it kind of makes it a little bit easier. And then going back to your, your other point, I see so many Kickstarter games and I, and I, I, you know, get on the page and I scroll down and I look at what the game looks like all, you know, set up and I immediately make a judgment. Oh, okay. This is what this game is about. And it's yeah. the games that don't make sense. Like I, and I look at a game, I go, what, what is this? I don't, I don't understand. And you start, you know, learning more and I watch a how to play video or whatever, just trying to understand the game. And there's so many people out there, I think right now doing things differently for the sake of doing them differently. They're thinking, Hey, a game with this kind of mechanic and this kind of theme has never happened. Let's do that. Well, that right. doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea right? just because <laughs> it hasn't been, maybe there's a reason it hasn't been done before. Maybe people <laughs> tried and it was garbage. And so well, doing things differently, is not necessarily the way to go. I think I think that within um, the grand scope of all the interesting things there are to do in the world, obviously there are some things that are more desirable to gamers than others. More, I call it gameable. Um, you know, some things are more gameable. And and if I don't know uh, if you're familiar with this, there's a really great documentary film called The Great Next Great American Board Game. Yeah. Have you heard of this? Yep. Yeah. And in that, there's uh, that fellow Randall who is trying to sell his game about um, driving or cults. something. Yeah, traffic. Yeah, yeah. Now I've played that game. I've I, my friend is actually one of the guys in the film, and he got a copy of it. And I've played Randall's game, and it's not a horrible game. But it's but it, there's a there's a moment in the movie where one of the other game designers says, "Look." You know, I don't want to play a game about sitting in traffic. I just got done doing that. You know, I, I want to play a game about something different. And and to that point, I think he's absolutely right, is that there are just because it exists doesn't necessarily need, mean that people want to play it. Like, I don't know, maybe there's a good game about doing laundry out there somewhere, but it's not one that makes me go, ooh, I want to play a game about sorting laundry, you know, that's. That doesn't immediately jump to mind. Now, you know, granted, hopefully somebody will take that up as a challenge and maybe in a year we'll see a game about laundry or something. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of Herman Lutman, who came on the show a while back. He talked about how he's an accountant for his day job. And so the last thing he wants to do is go home and play a really heavy Euro that feels like accounting. He's like, I don't right. want to do that. I want to go home and play a thematic game where I feel like a, a movie star or a rock star or some superstar, you know, killing zombies, something. I want to dive into a theme. I was like, you know, that's a great point. People don't want to just do what they've already been doing all day long. Sure. And so I think there's a lot to be said with that. Well, there's also a big component of um, wish fulfillment in games. And I, and I usually say that the three are, and let's see if I can remember it now, uh, people want to be smart, people want to be powerful, or people want to be rich. Yeah. And, and, and most games, video games or board games or whatever, role-playing games, all that, usually they center around at least one, if not all three of those attributes. Um, and, and so if you know that, and you, I think that that's like a good um, kind of a meta exercise to do on your game and go, which one of these three is my game touching on? Or, or maybe all three, or maybe two out of three. Um, and that... Um, that's not a bad touchstone as well to use to make sure that you're doing something that appeals for other people. Now, that said, so I've heard I've heard conflicting advice on this. I've heard some people say you never want to make a game for yourself because you're too in the weeds and you and you, you know, you I might, you know, I'm I'm a comic book collector 
And I've for years been thinking about how to make a game about comic book collecting. And I've not quite figured it out yet. But I think part of it might be just well, I'm too in the weeds with this. I'm, I'm too nerdy about this subject. It might just not be a good subject matter. Um, but conversely, if you're not interested in the subject matter, then my advice is you shouldn't be making that game. You should be making something that you're passionate about. Right. So you, Gabe, are passionate about football, obviously, and you're making a game about football. Yep. And I'm, I'm passionate about a game of a, about 1930s science fiction and guys flying around in rockets and killing each other, and that's what I made a game of. And, you know, so I hope that um, that's one of the tricks, right, is to see if people will feel that passion that the game designer puts into the game. And, it, and, and if they truly care about it, then the players should be able to feel it. Yeah, and I think going back to your point, what you just said a moment ago, of intertwining, as we look at intertwining theme and mechanics, is intertwining the mechanics that make people feel powerful or feel smart or feel sure. wealthy and understanding that that's what people want to feel. And they, they don't play games because they want to sit in traffic. They play games because they want to escape to a faraway land or into a, a place where they can betray their friends and stab them in the back, and that's okay. You know, that's yeah. just part of the game. And so, yeah, intertwining your theme and mechanics – understanding player psychology at the same time yes yeah absolutely i'm i i admit i am um I, this is an area i can do a lot more research in you know kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of the psychology of the player but I've, I've been making games long enough that i i feel like i generally know what people like uh and how to express that in gameplay uh and so uh, but it but you know all game designers uh, there's a great quote um, from a fellow named Jesse Shell who wrote a game about um, uh, it's called The Book of Lenses and it's a really good book. It's it's Jesse comes from a video game background, but he um, uh, also uh, this book applies to traditional board game design. And he has this great quote and I don't remember it verbatim, but he essentially says uh, a game designer needs to be an artist and an architect and a programmer and a choreographer and a film director and a storyteller and a, you know, a, a mathematician and a physicist. And a, like he lists about 20 or 30 different things. And, and to a certain extent, I totally agree with them because as game designers, we need to be, uh, at least familiar with a lot of different things. And psychology is a big part of it. I mean, a big part of game design is about, and this sounds really evil, but manipulating people's emotions or or at least manipulating the idea of hope, right? I hope I'm going to win or I hope this strategy that I do is going to work out or I hope this move is the right move. And a good game designer can really manipulate that feeling of hope in a player. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think even anybody that's a storyteller and games, if you're a game designer, you're in certain many ways a storyteller. The yeah. the better you become or the better you get at knowing how to manipulate people's feelings, how to get them on the edge of their seat, how to make them go <gasps> or no way or, you know, whatever response yeah. you're trying to get them to have through that story. And this doesn't matter if you're a writer or a video game designer or a preacher or yeah. a, a homeless guy on the side of the road trying to get somebody to give you $5. Like if you are any way in your life trying to tell stories, it is so important to understand how to get people to have a reaction and have an emotion. And even if you're having, even if you're designing a super heavy accounting economic based Euro game, that game still has a story and using the mechanics to kind of tell that story, I think is super, super important. Uh, and, and actually, let's kind of go into that with your process. What is your process for intertwining theme and mechanics and, and getting these emotions out of people? Um, well, a lot of time, I'm, I'm a, 
I come from a visual background. I, I studied art and I've studied film and I've worked in both industries. And like I said, I've made video games for a long time. So a lot of my inspiration comes from um, thinking about things visually. So in the case of a town called Showdown, I thought about the street and I, I was doing research on cowboy games and I said, you know, I've never seen a cowboy game that has that visual of the two guys standing at the end of the street shooting at each other like, a, like you see in High Noon or, or whatever. Um, for ray guns and rocket ships, it, it actually that idea came from a video game pitch that I gave, uh, and and the heart of it was I wanted an experience where the player was flying around in a rocket ship, like a big cigar shaped, you know, Flash Gordon era type thing, and then they could jump out of that ship and f jetpack their way through outer space and avoid asteroids and all that stuff, and then get into the bad guy's ship and fight them with swords and guns, kind of almost like pirates uh, getting on board. And that visual was such a compelling idea for me that I, I went and I pitched it. Now, I pitched this game probably in like the the early 2000s and the technology for like loading levels and whatnot wasn't quite there yet and so when i pitched it the people that i talked to they said we can't do that there's we can't make a huge galaxy of outer space and these all these individual little spaceships flying around and all that this is you're crazy you can't do this and so i kind of slunk back to my desk a little dejected and i said you know, uh, I still want this to be a thing. I love this idea so much. I want it to exist. And I was like, how can I make this without having to spend millions of dollars on it on, like a video game? And I said, a board game. You know, I can do this with a board game and I can and I can make it essentially myself or at least the, the prototype myself. And uh, and that was enough to kind of carry me forward to um, creating that game and getting it launched off the, the ground. Um, and so I think that that for me is that's where I usually start from is that visual or that or that concept, that idea of what do I want the player to do? What's that experience, that emotional or or um, experience that I want them to feel like they're having uh, in the game? And what's great about board games is even though they're just little bits of cardboard and miniatures and whatnot, you can still get that feeling across. Yeah, definitely. Now, what are some of the obstacles you've run into in your game designs as you're trying to marry the theme and mechanics together? Um, a lot of it has to do with cost. Uh, I'm, I'm a very toyetic kind of guy. Like I love the feeling of toys and I love, I'm, I collect toys as well and I have forever. And I, and I love the, the, I love the idea of a miniature world. Like I love the idea of this, like we're kind of like these gods looming over this microcosm and there's all this little activity going on. That's one of the really appealing things about board games to me. Uh, maybe I have some sort of crazy power complex or something. No, I mean, I think but, that's a uh, lot of us for sure. <laughs> but but for me, um, I want to represent um, uh, the world not just as a flat environment, but I want it three-dimensional. Uh, and I want the people to be little miniatures. And I want – if I was going to have buildings, I would want the buildings to be little papercraft cardboard guys or if I want – you know, whatever. Um, and so my biggest concern about ray guns and rocket ships was – there's a lot of miniatures in the game. Like I, there's about, uh, I want to say in the core game, there's about 12 unique molds. Uh, and then there's somewhere close to 40 miniatures in the game and not counting dice and cardboard and, and all that. And it, and I realized very quickly that this was going to be a very expensive game. And when I priced it out, originally I was thinking of kickstarting it myself. 
And I did my homework and I talked to people that did Kickstarters and I talked to manufacturers and I have a lot of friends that make toys and, and other things. And so I talked to them about what would it take for this to happen? And the prices that I kept generating were just so high that I was like, there's no way I can do this myself. It's just impossible. So I said, all right, let me go to a publisher. And I and I went to my local game store and I looked on the shelves and I looked at every publisher that had a game with miniatures in it. And I said, all right, I'm going to try and set up meetings at Gen Con with all these people. And I reached out to about a dozen of them and about nine of them said, sure, we'd love to talk to you. And so I had a real nice success rate. And I ended up um, near the end, there were about two or three that were interested in and IDW, they just kind of got it. They got the world. They got the the, the they loved the 1930s sci-fi. They wanted to make miniature. They were just putting their toe in the water with miniatures games. They had done the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle game, uh, and so they were like, "Yeah, we know how to make miniatures." And you know, they turned out really nice. Let's sure, let's let's make your game. And so it just happened to be the right combination of interest and excitement and uh, technical know-how that. Um, that they were like, we want to make this game, and it, you know, and, and now it's coming out, which is awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Now, when you were in the development process, were there any any mechanics in there that just didn't fit quite right that you had to figure out that maybe they made the game work, but they didn't quite make sense? You had to change. Yeah, there was. There's actually one thing that got jettisoned. I don't know. Maybe it will come back, but not. I mean, obviously not for this version of the game, but maybe if we do an expansion or something. But because I have a background in video games, I wanted to add a little bit of that video game vibe to it. And so I had um, a mechanism that I called the achievement chart. And the achievement chart was just a separate piece of cardboard, but on it there were about six or seven slots for different achievements. So it would be like, you know, uh, get into outer space for the first time or um, have your crew flanking you or and you, and you would get some sort of bonus like a ta usually a tactical bonus or a die roll modifier and so i had this chart and as you would play um, you would kind of fight over the advantages so i might be um, you know i might have put my guy into outer space for the first time and then on your next turn you get your guy into space and so boop you kick my my token out of the way and now you've got that advantage and and i'm never going to be able to get that back because there is no other first time for me so now i've got to concentrate on okay well let me look at these other achievements maybe i can get one of those instead or there might be ones that we can fight back and forth over you know i have it now you have it now i have it now you you know and so there's a little bit of that fun uh, tug of war going on um, the problem was it was one more piece of cardboard on the board it was it was tough to keep track of it was it was kind of distracting really to keep track of there were there were so many other other things going on in the game as it was with cards and miniatures and whatnot not that the game is super complex but there's a there's enough going on and um and in the end and the publisher made this call they said you know well let's just let's just lose it for for this version and in the end i kind of went yeah okay you know i i, I kind of hate to lose it but yeah you're right this is a this is a good call and um and so yeah it, you know it happens but um you have to kill your darlings as they say uh, and not be afraid to uh, if if your only problem with your game design is that you're cutting out too many other good features, then that's not a bad problem to have. Yeah, for sure. Now, what would you tell somebody who, you know, their game works and everything makes sense except that one mechanic. But without that one mechanic, the game just doesn't quite work right. When like when do you just walk away? Not not walk away from the game, but when do you just like let it be like, yeah, this mechanic doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it makes the game work. And so we're just going to keep it in there. Like, how do you figure that that out? That's the perfect time to do playtesting. I think that if you get 
people well i mean obviously there's different levels of play testing there's blind play testing which is you're just throwing it in front of somebody and you're and that's when it breaks the most horribly because uh, you're not there to explain it and they're just going to ride rough shot over it and make all types of assumptions and, and all that uh, but it's a, a super invaluable thing to have. Then there's the regular play testing where you put it in front of your friends or family or even acquainted, you know, people you don't know. But you're there and you're kind of seeing what's going on. And, you know, usually you should just be quiet and watch. But uh, it's really hard, right? I'm, every game designer has that problem. Hey, wait, you're doing that wrong. Right. Um, but the but the one that I think is the most important is uh, this is usually the the first step for me or second step. Usually I do some solo playing first and then I – but then I feel kind of confident enough to show it to my friends to just for them to destroy it. Uh, and that is when you have like a circle of um, trusted people to play your game. Now, I am fortunate to know a lot of game designers, video and, and board game. So I have that resource that I can go to and have them play my game. And what's great about having a fellow game designer looking at your game is that they will very quickly understand what the game is about. And they will also usually very quickly get into the theme of the game. So now they're starting to think if your game is a game about 1930s science fiction and those people know about 1930s science fiction, they're going to start thinking about all the things all the tropes and all the movies they've seen and all the comic books they've read that are about that and start bringing that experience to the table, which might be a completely different experience than I have. And so if we run into this, this bugaboo where they go, hmm, this doesn't quite work right, but because I know your game is about this, maybe we can – how about you know in this movie, this happened, and maybe you can replicate that with these cards or these dice. And so if you're lucky enough – uh, you'll be, or fortunate enough, I guess you'll be in a situation where your play testers will will help you along. And and I know I don't know a single game designer that has never been generous with their suggestions and information because I think as a whole, game board game designers really like to help each other. Yeah, I've definitely found that to be the case. And it doesn't matter if you're talking to some of the people that have made it, quote unquote, the Matt Leacocks and their claims yeah. of the world, or or people that are just really figuring this thing out and just starting out it everybody is kind of on the same page with oh you yeah i'd love to play test your game i'd love to give you uh some you know some feedback on that because they want the same thing it's one of those like i scratch your back you scratch mine kind of thing and right. so it's just a really great industry to be in now now scott this has been awesome do you have any kind of advice just general advice for somebody who's really working right now to, to marry the theme and mechanics together um you know once again i would say pick a theme that you're passionate about Pick a theme that you know a lot about because then it's a lot easier for you to come up with solutions if you do run into problems because then you can apply it to that uh, that context of the theme. You know, this is this is a game about exploring a jungle and and what are all the things that happen when I'm exploring a jungle? Oh, okay, uh, we can have uh, well, let's replicate this type of experience or oh, this will solve um, this problem that we're having with the game design. Um, so yeah, yeah, make what you love. You know, and and I think that the if you if you put it out there, I think players can tell when when the game designer is in love with a theme and they and they kind of wholeheartedly embrace it. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, Scott, man, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about uh, Scott's advice on art direction when you're putting together a game and really directing the art and what all goes on in that realm. So, Scott, appreciate you coming on the show and good luck with everything oh, you got. Everything you got going on right now. Yeah, thanks, Gabe. I really appreciate it. Um, do you mind if I uh, do a little plug? Go ahead, man. 
Um, I don't know when this is airing, uh, but uh, the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund is going on right now on BoardGameGeek.com. This is an event that is put on by uh, the Dice Tower organization, and it's a really great charity auction event. And uh, in that event, um, it ends November 14th, so I don't know if this is is this going up before that. I will make sure it goes up before that. Oh. Fantastic. Um, I one the uh, the item that I am putting up for auction is a signed and illustrated, uh, and by that I mean I will draw a, a picture uh, in your game box of one of the characters from the game uh, of Ray Guns and Rocket Ships, and it's the full premium version. Uh, if you missed out on the Kickstarter, it's a great way to get the Super Deluxe. There were all types of great new characters and other plastic bits that were that aren't in the regular version. So uh, if you don't mind, um, you know, going over to BoardGameGeek.com, look for the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund auction, uh, and I appreciate your bid, and uh, it's to help gamers in need, and I, I can't think of a better um, thing to support than that. Yeah, for sure. That's something that Tom Vassal and the, the Dice Tower folks put together a number of years ago, and it's helped yeah. a number of people that have been going through really hard times to just have a friend and just have some uh, some extra income, some extra money to help them get through whatever difficult thing they're going through. So yeah, you go check out all the different things that are being auctioned because it's going to a really great cause. Well, again, Scott, appreciate you coming on the show, and, and good luck, man. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?